we're going to look at this this idea of of fault lines. Um, I use that that metaphor just because, from my perspective, looking at what was happening with this issue of uh, social justice, the critical social justice movement, um, it was obvious that um, things were lining out along a fault line with individuals on either side of that fault. And I think a lot of that had to do with um, miscommunication, or some of it had to do with miscommunication, um, using the same terminology but meaning different things. Um, but I believe upon digging deeper that a lot of it had to do with um, with worldview issues, um, quite frankly, with you know, some who had imbibed some ideas and ideologies um, that were faulty and that were foreign and that were alien uh, to biblical thinking. And, and because of that, we're thinking about very real issues um, in ways that, that, weren't, that weren't biblical. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to do a couple of things. One, deal with some of these issues of terminology, just sort of explain what it is that we're dealing with, um, and then how it is that we need to respond. I want to start with this quote from the economist Friedrich Hayek. Hayek wrote, I have come to feel strongly that the greatest service I can still render to my fellow men would be that I could make the speakers and writers among them thoroughly ashamed ever again to employ the term social justice. Let me read that again. I've come to feel strongly that the greatest service I can still render to my fellow men would be that I could make the speakers and writers among them thoroughly ashamed ever to employ, ever again to employ the term social justice. Because Hayek understood what this term means and where this term comes from. Why is it an issue among us as Christians, as evangelicals? I think it's a, an issue among us because God demands justice. And we know that God demands justice. And we're committed to justice as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a terminology or an ideology about justice creeps into the culture and then creeps into the church that happens to be foreign to our understanding of justice, we can be swayed by that terminology. That is, until we understand what the terminology means. God does demand justice. Injustice is sin. So if social justice is truly justice, then anything that doesn't align with it would be sin. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, 
and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, uh, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened with, or from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then here it is. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? God demands justice. But the question that we have to answer is, what is justice? And I'm going to argue that justice is the righteous application of the law of God. It is the righteous application of the law of God. We do not show favoritism to the rich or to the poor. It is the righteous application of the law of God. But is that what the term social justice means? Well, the answer to that question quite simply is no. That's not what the term social justice means. Listen to this from the Oxford Dictionary, the English language. Social justice, a noun. Chiefly, politics and philosophy. Justice at the level of a society or state as regards the possession of wealth, commodities, opportunities, and privileges. See also distributive justice. So, Social justice is about the distribution or redistribution of wealth, commodities, opportunities, and privileges. That's what social justice means. Let me say it again. It's the distribution or redistribution of wealth, commodities, opportunities, and privileges. That is very different than the idea of justice being the righteous application of the law of God. One of the words that is often used to describe social justice is the word equity. Not equality, but equity. Equity is about equal outcomes. Equity is about equal distribution, which fits right along with this, right? And so when we see inequities, we see injustice. And this is very important to note because this is oftentimes where we find ourselves missing each other in terms of 
discussions, conversations, disagreements about these issues. And so someone will say something about um, injustice, or for example, uh, racial injustice, right? We'll hear that term, racial injustice. But what in the world is racial injustice, right? What is racial injustice? Well, when somebody uses the term racial injustice, what they mean is a lack of inequity or a lack of equity between people of various racial groups. It can be in terms of income, right? If if one group as a whole has less income than another group as a whole, um, and let's clarify this, if one group as a whole has less income than another group as a whole. And, and, and if the group that has more income happens to be from a group that is deemed to be an oppressor group. This is an important distinction, by the way. It can't just be one group has less income than another group. One racial group has less income than another racial group, right? Then that is racial injustice. Why? Because Asians make more money than white people. And we never refer to that as racial injustice against white people. Right? You got to be really careful with these terms. There are underlying assumptions to these terms. And they are Marxist assumptions. The Marxist assumption of the oppressor-oppressed paradigm. If you, if you do not get that, then you will not get these terms. So people talk about racial injustice. So now we're talking about, you know, if there is inequity between one racial group and another racial group, and the racial group on the top of that inequity has been deemed an oppressor group. So in income, if this group has... As a group, less income than this group, then that is racial injustice. Um, if it, in terms of incarceration, right? Um, if this group is deemed to be overrepresented in incarceration compared to this group, then that is racial injustice. Again, only if this group is deemed to be an oppressor. Why? White folks are incarcerated at higher rates than Asians. but we would never call it racial injustice, right? By the way, Nigerian immigrants have higher incomes than white folks. But we would never call that racial injustice, okay? So that's what people are referring to when they talk about injustice. And the, the underlying assumption is this assumption of equity. And the underlying assumption is this Marxist assumption that inequity exists as a direct result of hegemonic power being exerted by the oppressor class. All inequities come from that. So you you, you have to get that. Um, and so I make the argument that that's sort of alien. It's antithetical um, to biblical truth. And I like to use this story as an illustration of that. How would um, 
the critical social justice movement uh, interprets certain passages of scripture and one in particular. So we know that there is a man who, who leaves his servants with a number of talents, right? He leaves one with five talents. He leaves one. You know this? Two. Another one with one. Now, already, there's a problem. Because he didn't give everybody the same number of talents. And who's telling this story? Who? Jesus. Jesus is telling this story. So this is hugely problematic for social justice advocates already. Unless the rest of the story tells about how this person is evil because he didn't give everybody the same number of talents. So now he goes away and he comes back. Five talent man, what you got? Boss, I got 10. That's good. Two talent man, what you got? Boss, I invested too. I didn't have as much to invest as he did, but I invested what I had and I turned your two into four. Good for you. One talent man, what you got? I still got that one. So I knew the kind of man you were and I just wanted to make sure when you came back, I could give you that talent. Here's the social justice ending to that story. You, you got 10. Give me five. I'm going to give one to the guy with four. And I'm going to give four to the guy with one. And that way there will be equity because everybody ends up with five. That's social justice. That's what the critical social justice movement is arguing for. Again, remember, we talked about the fact that this comes from an ideology. But what is that ideology? And I've alluded to it already. That ideology that it comes from is this ideology of critical theory. Marxist ideology of critical theory and the assumptions of the Marxist ideology of critical theory that the world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed and that oppressors establish the rules and fundamentals of the societies that they dominate in order to benefit themselves and to the detriment of others. And so because of this, there's some other words that we need to understand. Whiteness doesn't mean what you think it means. Whiteness is understood as a set of normative privileges granted to white-skinned individuals and groups, which is invisible to those privileged by it. That's what whiteness is. Well, what is white privilege? White privilege is a series of unearned advantages that accrue to white people by virtue of their whiteness. Then there's white supremacy. White supremacy is any belief, behavior, or system that supports, promotes, or advances, watch this, white privilege. Then there's white complicity. What is white complicity? White people 
through the practices of whiteness and by benefiting, benefiting from white privilege, contribute to the maintenance of systemic racial injustice. By the way, what is systemic racial injustice? Systemic, we already talked about what racial injustice is, right? Racial injustice is unequal outcomes between groups. The, the idea of systemic racial injustice is the idea that systems are established and exist in order to perpetuate those inequities. Then there's white equilibrium. White equilibrium is a cocoon of racial comfort, centrality, superiority, and entitlement, racial apathy, and obliviousness, all rooted in an identity of being good people free of racism. And then there's my favorite, white fragility. What is white fragility? The inability and unwillingness of white people to talk about race due to the grip that whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, white complicity, and white equilibrium exerts on them knowingly or unknowingly. In other words, white folks are doomed. So how is this then to be addressed? It is to be addressed through the process of anti-racism. Now, anti-racism is not the same as not being racist. In fact, Ibram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, makes it very clear that not racist is racist. Direct quote. But here's what you have to understand. People who talk about not being racist are operating from a previous definition of racism. This previous definition of racism saw racism as animosity, hatred towards individuals because of their race or ethnicity. It was a sin in the heart of men. But remember, we're not talking about that. The new definition of racism is this idea of privilege and inequity. So because of that, Anti-racism is about doing the work necessary to overcome and overturn these privileges in order to bring about said equity. Now, how do you do that? Well, Abram Gindi gave us a gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It's like the clearest example of what's wrong with the idea of anti-racism. Um, he proposed an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. An anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it tells you everything that you need to know about this ideology and what it's working towards. He says, and I quote, to fix the original sin of racism. Stop. It has often been said, and I have argued, that anti-racism is religious in nature. 
Um, and it absolutely is religious in nature. I make that argument um, in my book. I won't go through all of that right now. But the idea that he begins, like, just, just imagine, if you will, a conservative proposing an amendment to the United States Constitution, and the conservative begins with the concept of original sin. I mean, just, you know, people will be running around with their hair on fire, right? Separation of church and state, white Christian nationalism, right? But he says, to fix the original sin of racism. Now, it's also important to recognize this idea, this concept is very common with those who hold to uh, critical social justice, this idea of America's original sin, right? That's what the 1619 Project is all about, right? What, what, how do you define America? How do you understand America? Is it the documents that we say define us? No, it's not 1776. It's not 1781. It's not 1787, right? It's, it's not declaration. It's not constitution. It's not ratification. It's none of those things. It's 1619. Why 1619? Because 1619 is when slaves come to these shores, And slavery is America's original sin. And if you want to understand what America is, if you want to understand everything that's wrong wrong with America, you've got to go back to 1619 because slavery is America's original sin. That's what the 1619 Project is all about. Okay? To fix the original sin of racism. Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. And then here he gives us those two principles. The first one, racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. That's principle number one. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. How do you know a policy is racist? Because it ends up with an inequity. And that's the only explanation of the inequity. Okay? Again, try try to translate this to other areas, right? Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. The NFL and the NBA are racist. Because black folks are overrepresented in those leagues. And racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. Why do I make this point? Because of the caveat that I told you earlier. You have to assume the Marxist paradigm of oppressor-oppressed. So this would only be applied if the inequity is to the disadvantage of groups who are deemed oppressed. Anything where they are overrepresented would not fall under this category because of the assumptions of the Marxist paradigm. I mean, little things like that just make it crystal clear that we're dealing with another worldview. So that's principle number one. 
race, racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. And the second one, that different racial groups are equals. Different racial groups are equals. And he doesn't mean here ontologically. That's not what he's talking about, right? That, that, that's not what he means. Um, he, he means that, you know, different racial groups are equal to the degree that if, if all things were equal, everybody would be equally represented everywhere. Which has never been the case anywhere in the world in the history of mankind. There are certain groups of people that excel at certain things. Amen? Austrians just make good violins. Wherever they move, wherever they go, right? Thomas Sowell has really done a magnificent job of demonstrating this in his writings with different groups of people who, regardless of where they end up, end up dominating certain fields. Um, but those are the two principles. All right, we continue. The, amend- the amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold. So you'd set a certain threshold, right, of how different racial groups are to be uh, represented. And anything over that would be unconstitutional, as well as racist ideas by public officials with racist ideas and public official clearly defined. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. Riddle me this, Batman. Who's going to train and certify him? Kindy and D'Angelo and the like. They're the ones who are going to do that. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. Monitor those policies. Investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. That's what this looks like. That's the end game and the ultimate manifestation of this ideology. And, I mean, let, let, me, let me say this. I've been dealing with this and talking about this for, for a, 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 very, a very long time, a decade and a half maybe, dealing with this and, and talking about this. And one of the charges that often comes is the charge of insensitivity, right? You're, you're, just, you're insensitive to the plight of, you know, fill in the blank. Um, which is ridiculous on its face. But what people 
tend to not understand from my perspective is that I think and operate as an apologist and I'm looking at these ideas and their consequences and I can separate that from things that make my heart bleed. Does that make sense? So I can say on the one hand, wow, that was tragic and we need to address that. While saying on the other hand, this ideology is poison and it needs to be rooted out. And I think one of the problems that we're having is that oftentimes we allow ourselves to be shamed into only doing the former and not doing the latter. But we have an obligation, and I think the Apostle Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in those first six verses. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. It's a threat, by the way. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. There's two fronts here. On the one hand, and again, what we like to do, we like the second part of this. Let's take, let's take, every, let's take every thought captive, right? Let's take every thought captive. We get that. In other words, we need to operate from a biblical worldview. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. When we think about these issues, issues of race and ethnicity and justice, we need to operate from a biblical worldview. And we all look at that and we shake our heads and we say yes and amen. But it's that first part that we don't like. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And the reason that we don't like that is because of the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And we don't believe the other 10. And so because of that, you can say something about, for example, the LGBTQIA2S. Plus, and people are more offended that you speak out against that than they are about those lifestyles. And I'm talking about Christian people, right? Same thing here. We, 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 get, we get more offended about speaking out against ideologies, then we are offended by these destructive alien ideologies. And brothers, I'm saying that we have to be about both and. And, and, and let me address another issue. And that's the issue of tone. That's the issue of tone, right? 
Because, you know, I get that one a lot too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, fine. You know, I, I get that and I understand, but, but it's, but it's your tone. It, it, it's your tone. Well, what is it about my tone? I mean, let's go back and listen to what I said and when I said it. And you tell me what the problem is with my tone. And at the end of the day, here's what I've come to understand. The tone that they don't like is masculine. They don't like masculine, confident, direct. And instead, what they want us to do is make our arguments, but allow our arguments to die the death of a thousand qualifications. It's what makes pastors preach messages on homosexuality, for example, or racial issues in ways that they would never preach on other issues. For example, can you imagine? You know, now I'm going to be preaching on drunkenness today, but here's what I want you to know. I love drunkards. I have friends who are drunkards. (laughs) I am not here to condemn drunkards. We laugh, right? Because that's ridiculous. Or adulterers. Listen, some of my best friends are adulterers. (laughs) And I just want you to know that if you're here today, and you are an adulterer. I love you. We laugh, but that's exactly how we start our sermons on homosexuality. Because we've allowed these individuals to make us cowards. Because here's what I've learned it doesn't matter. How hard I try to qualify statements, it's never going to be enough because their problem is not with my tone. It's with the position that I take. Now, let me just say quickly, if a brother who knows me, who I know, who I love You know, Tom Buck is sitting here in the front row. Tom Buck and I are friends. And Tom and I have both, you know, sort of communicated to one another and said, hey, look at this. Am am I off? Was this tone okay? So don't hear me saying that we just get to say whatever we want, however we want, and that, you know, there, there is no ever an issue with our talk. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying on these types of issues, more often than not, when people say tone, what they mean is your ideas. What they mean is that there's an assumption That anyone who would take the position that you take is an evil person. That's what they mean by tone. So, let me quickly...
give you this, and then we'll, we'll take some time for some questions. So they wanted me to do like all of this in the time that we had. Critical race theory. Critical race theory is a, is a part of this. It is an expression of this. It, it, is, it is one of the critical theories, and it is the critical theory that's being applied to this issue of race. There are several things that we've heard about critical race theory. One thing that we heard early on was um, critical race theory is a boogeyman. Nobody's doing critical race theory. Critical race theory is some obscure idea that they teach in law school. Then we heard everybody's talking about critical race theory. It's a dog whistle, but nobody knows what it means, right? Then we heard, no, critical race theory is just about honest teaching on America's racist history, right? So we went from, it's a boogeyman, it's not there, to actually people who oppose it just don't want people to, they just don't want to have discussions about about race and racism. Um, Critical race theory is an ideology that comes out of critical legal studies. There are four main tenets of critical race theory, okay? And, and you can, this, this comes from their literature. Premise number one is that racism is normal. And when they say that racism is normal, we're talking about 1619 normal. We're talking about racism being America's original sin. We're talking about racism being the catch-all that explains all of the things that we're dealing with today. Everything is racist. America's racist to its core. It always has been. And everything that we're seeing is a result of this racist core. That's principle number one. Principle number two is interest conversions. And interest convergence argues this. White people benefit from racism. And because white people benefit from racism, they will not undo racism unless it is in their interest to do so. So anytime white people are doing something that appears to be undoing racism, it's because there's another benefit that they're going to derive from that, that they value more than whatever it is that they're undoing. That's the second premise. Okay? That's the second premise. Interest convergence. White people will not undo this for righteous reasons, right? In order for something to be righteous, it has to be the right thing done the right way for the right reason. And interest convergence is basically arguing that white people can't do that, which means that anybody who's teaching teaching critical race theory is actually teaching that white people are irredeemable sinners in this area. The third premise is this premise of of anti-liberalism. And when I say liberalism, I don't mean like liberal conservative. When I say liberalism, you know, I I mean, you know, the, the, the... the heart of, you know, enlightenment rationality, right? Ideas like, you know, meritocracy and objective truth. And, you know, these things, these things come out of whiteness. And and this last principle is that even knowledge is socially constructed. And because knowledge is socially constructed, there are other ways of knowing. And when it comes to issues of race, 
those who are oppressed have access to knowledge about this that oppressors don't, which is why in order to understand, we have to elevate minority voices. Have you heard that? And we come to truth through narratives. Narratives are everything, okay? So those are the four main premises of critical race theory. So the next time somebody says, you know, no, I mean, there's things that we can gain from critical race theory. There's things that we can learn from critical race theory. There's ways that we can benefit from critical race theory. Just understand that all four of those premises are antithetical to biblical truth. And those are the foundational underlying assumptions of critical race theory. Not, not, not mine, theirs. Theirs. Okay? All right. We got five minutes. Answer me your questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the integration of CRT into the church. And it, it, it is. There is an integration of CRT into the church. Um, it, it, and you see it even in the way that we talk, right? So when we start talking, so people will say, no, you know, I, I'm not for CRT. But then they'll start using language like systemic racism, structural racism. And that comes from the first premise of critical race theory, right? Racial injustice, you know, so on and so forth, right? Uh, so they're so they're, they're they're doing critical race theory while rejecting the term critical race theory, and that's what I see more of than anything else. Rarely are we seeing people, although we do sometimes see people who say, "No, we are going to incorporate critical race theory." Southern Baptist Convention did that a couple of years ago, right, with Resolution Nine on critical race theory, basically saying that it is an interpretive tool. And you know, I talk about that in fault lines. I you know show a side-by-side analysis of, you know, that original uh, resolution and the way that it was turned into a pro-CRT resolution. But, I mean, it's happening. It's happening. We're using the the books of, you know, CRT leaders and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's happening. Yep. Um, you, You asked me why are a lot of the people advocating for CRT white? Yeah, white guilt. Yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah. The question is, do I look for an explosion in the number of people who are attracted to the nation of Islam as a, as a result of that? No, but what's growing is the black Hebrew Israelite movement. Um, that, that, that's really uh, growing in, in its popularity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. 
I think you just did. I think you should. I think you should. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Those things, those things are concerning. Yeah, those things are concerning. But I will also say that I think, you know, a hundred years from now, uh, people are going to talk about us and how we tolerated abortion. Yeah, because see, see, here's the deal. Like, slavery was awful. Jim Crow was awful. But I'm here. With abortion. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, I yeah, absolutely. I think, I think every generation um, has sin that they deal with and have to root out, you know, that is, and not just every generation, but every culture, you know, has sin that they deal with and, and have to root out. But none of those things, you know, are, are unique to, to America either. Yes. Right over here. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> if it's... N- Critical race theory? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on today as far as racism, racism in the past? Uh, the sin that is in the heart of man. I mean, that's what's going on today, and that's what's been going on in the past. That's what's going on in the in the history of mankind, in every culture where people have seen themselves as other. That's what was going on in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? Um, it, it is the sin that is in the heart of man that wants to other people, right? And that's why this is so sinister, because critical race theory and... Um, you know, critical social justice and anti-racism wants to get away from the heart of man and deal with policies. And you cannot legislate sin out of the heart of men, you know? Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 And I think, and that's why I started with, with definitions and terminology. I think what we need to do is fight for definitions and terminology and use biblical definitions and biblical terminology, right? And expose unbiblical definitions and unbiblical terminologies, right? And I, I mean, the dictionary is literally being changed before our eyes. Like, we've, we're now on our third iteration 
of the definition of racism. It's racism 3.0, right? And it's this critical race theory, critical theory ideology being promoted, right, through the, the, the way that we use language. And I think that's huge. That's important. But guess what hasn't changed? The biblical idea of partiality, right? It, that, that hasn't changed. And so if we're fighting for biblical terminologies and we're fighting against being, you know, sort of pulled away and sucked in by unbiblical terminologies, I mean, that will go a long way in, in, in all of this. Yes. Yeah, the question is, do I find it more difficult to deal with these things inside the church than I do um, dealing with these things outside of the church? Um, you know, n- n- not, not necessarily, not, not necessarily, but I will say that a lot of, um, I have a lot of new friends outside of the church f- from, from, you know, dealing with this, from people who are, who are dealing with this and who are seeing it and who've been, you know, seeing it and dealing with it for a while, Right. Um, and so there are a lot of guys out there who've been dealing with this and who've been writing about this. And now all of a sudden they look at what's happening in Christianity and they're going, wait, it, it's, it's jumped, <laughs> you know, and now it's holding, it's holding sway here. And I, I don't think these people, you know, these, these, these people get it. Um, and so, yeah, I, interestingly enough, I've even been criticized, you know, for that because of some of the friends that I have who are outside of uh, the camp in terms of Christianity, but who get this and who are very helpful in the way that, that they, that they get this. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this battle is everywhere and it's not new. Right. Um, and what's very interesting is, you know, you talk to people and there's some people here, um, who, you know, either live in or recently moved from, uh, Marxist socialist communist countries, and you talk to them and they're like, you guys need to fix this, right? Because they know the terminology, they know the ideology, they saw what it did, you know? And they're like, I cannot believe that this is being tolerated, especially among Christians, you know, in, in this country. And listen, um, I, I'm sorry. I, I got there's another session in here right after. Okay, we'll go, we'll last, because, you know, you were, that was like, just, I just respect the way you put that hand up, brother. Go ahead. Last one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. How, you know, how do you, how do you address, you know, uh, brothers, pastors, leaders, who are, who are addressing part of this, but, but not the rest of it. For me, I, I go back to that idea of defining terms. I want people to understand that this is a worldview, that this is an ideology, that there are assumptions underlying this. And that's where, that's where I start, start in fault lines, right? With the assumptions that are underlying this. And once you understand the assumptions that are underlying it, and then you see how these assumptions are being applied, um, if, if you're honest, you know, then what you have to do is you, you have to get away from those assumptions. And I find that when I do that, 
unfortunately, there's two responses. Sometimes people just say, oh, yeah, I see that. And they'll try to find another way to express what they're trying to express. Other times, what I discover is brothers are actually holding to what they claim to deny. Thank you.